you shouldn't be making an investment decisions just because there is a negative gearing benefit attached to it or because you're not paying any stamps on it. Ultimately, the investment decision should be made based on the fundamentals of the suburb and the property itself. Tax is an added strategy. It's not the only strategy. Hello and welcome to Help Me Buy a Property Podcast. Today we are going to talk about are house and land packages or typically of the planned properties worth investing. We are going to talk about what a house land package is. We are going to talk about what the growth corridors and the growth suburbs are. Why are house and land packages predominantly in these areas? Why are land sales offered in stages? And does that mean that you should never buy a house and land package or a property in a growth corridor? More importantly, we are also going to talk about the risks associated with house and land packages and what is better than buying a house and land package. Ultimately, we are going to share some examples of the value that can be created outside house and land packages and with house and land packages. We're also going to bust the myths in relation to negative gearing, exclusive real estate deals, rental guarantees in relation to house and land packages. And the last and the most important question, is house and land package worth buying and who are the people who it would serve the justice for? Thank you for listening to us today and stay tuned till the very end. If you have any questions, comments, concerns or feedback, please jump into the comments. Welcome and listen to the full episode. Take care. And welcome again back to the Help Me Buy Puppy podcast. I am your host, Cheryl Leon, and my amazing co-host, Watson Reza. How are we all? Mox, how are we doing today? Hello, Cheryl. I am awesome. How are you today? Oh, Sam, we're going to be talking about a really, really interesting topic, which comes up very often, um, and especially with investors looking to purchase house and land or off the plan and this is a really contentious topic because you know uh, a lot of people are like yeah it's fantastic you know i can potentially catch a wave and you know double the price or whatever and then the others the other side you've got the other cap which are like no no off the plan it's terrible so i think we're going to go through and weigh up some of the pros and cons of this today so we're ready to rock and roll Hundred percent, hundred percent. And look, I mean, everyone you think about house and land package, every investor that I've ever spoken to, majority of them have dappled their feet into house and land package, including myself, right? And so I'm not going to lie that you know we haven't purchased these, but as a first time investor versus an experienced investor, you tend to reflect and think about some of these things in hindsight and say, okay, what could we have done differently? How does you know, the mechanics of some of these things work to make better decisions. So super excited about the topic. Yeah. And what I want to ask and for us to explore is that are they the same considerations to make when you're an investor as opposed to a owner occupier as well? So I think there's is this sort of difference as well we need to be able to talk about. Um, oh yeah, hundred percent. Hundred percent. Yes. Let's dive in. To just to start off with, let's give a little, um, some context. What is house and land, and what is off the plan? Are they the same? Are they the same beast? 
Uh, look, ultimately, if you think about house and land package or off-the-plan properties or land and build, you know, they're all similar names, you know. What you're de- doing is basically a land and a build on it. And so if it's a house and land package, it's a package deal by a builder who is buying the land from the developer or holding that ran- land from the developer and packaging it for you so you don't have to go out and find a builder for yourself. Usually there are two contracts, one contract with the builder, one contract with the land developer. Um, and, and that's how the land house and land package works. Sometimes you would hear people talk about single contracts where the land has been settled by the builder and they are selling it as a single contract. And so you pay a small deposit up front and the balance of the money comes in at the tail end when you're getting the house. You know, people tend to advertise this for or lower holding cost or SMSF, you know, type of product um, uh, with single contracts in place. Um, a lot of townhouses are self-sold as single contract as well because, you know, the subdivision doesn't go through. And so you would see um, a lot of brand new townhouses um, are sold as a small deposit up front and then, you know, everything coming in at the tail end. So very similar mindsets. And um, there is a lot of attraction to this product, of course, right? You think about it that, they are pitched as you can save stamp duties on it. You can you don't you only need like five percent in some cases ten percent deposit. Uh, people offer you know equity buybacks. People offer you know no deposit schemes. So there's heaps of schemes that are attached to these house and land packages. Um, and uh, the the interesting bit is this, and this is an owner occupier in me talking about it. You know when I bought this long 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 time ago. Uh, the natural attraction is that you pay 5% or $10,000 or $15,000 or $5,000 and you become an owner of a land in 18 months or 24 months or three years. Um, and so a lot of dependency on the de- decision-making is that future growth that people naturally think about when we are there making some of these decisions. Yeah. And maybe in terms of understanding how these House and land packages and off the plan come about. From what I understand, you know, back in back in the good old days, you know, a developer will develop something, they, and, and and typically they would only sell this when they're completed. However, because of funding, because of finance, and because developers, um, there was a requirement that they needed to have enough debt to coverage. So. Without going into too much detail, it required developers to sell some of their stock earlier before it was actually constructed, so that it could have um, the the banks had a level of confidence or assurance that you know that they would be able this this would be a project that would be successful in a way out there. Definitely, go ahead, and hence why developers typically would sell something off the plan with a bit of a discount to what. And eventually would end up. Or that was in the you know that was in the old days. I say in the old days, you know, maybe it was about ten years ago. But that was the case then, where it was maybe basically to be able to keep keep and that development off. And it still happens now. There's still a requirement for for pre sales and so on. So you know, sometimes there is that like, there is a certain level of discount there. However, there is there are times where we've seen where what you've purchased for actually doesn't value up to what it ends up being. Yes. So there's been 
cases where it's been a discount and you've been able to catch the wave and you know it values up and you you've made some equity at that point but it's a little bit of a gamble isn't it because then you don't know what the market's done and whether that value is actually going to then stack up we've seen these especially in places like the Gold Coast and so on, where there was like just a whole lot of stock that came on, you know, pre pre GFC swifting and then I the banks and then when they came to sell it, yeah. the banks just said too much too much exposure in this location. We are going to give we're gonna pull back the valuations and you and you have people that had to basically shell out more more money. Definitely. Definitely. What people don't realize is that ultimately any growth that is coming through these areas are driven because of the supply constraints that is controlled by the developer. So you think from a developer's perspective, they will have numerous stages, you know, of cutouts, you know, I'll call it cutouts um, of these, these land developments or land subdivisions coming through. And one of the reasons they have these stages coming through is because they want one stage's profit to fund the next stage and the next stage's profit to fund the next stage. And so that's how they're doing it. They are slowly and gradually, you know, I'm banking it on. Of course, there is development profits in the developments, but they are also banking on some growth profit as well because they're controlling the supply. And so they're pushing the prices up slightly. Now imagine, you know, there is 200 lots or 300 lots and an extra five or 10,000 increases is a big number in their profitability, you know, when they're selling such a big, big, you know, lots. And so in order to lure these people in for the first 20 lots or first 10 lots at a discount, of course, you know, you, you might get that, but you don't know, you know, sometimes builders might pick, pick these lots, you know, because ultimately they are buying in chunks or they're buying in bulk. So it's important to understand some of these differences. It it happened to me, you know, I remember 2010, I think it was, or 2009, I think, or eight, I think, when we I doubled my feet into house and land package, um, bought it for 260 the bank valued at 230 so $30,000, ouch, out of my pocket um, that I had to pay. And I was like, whoa, what happened there? You know, first time, I was like, <laughs> how can the property that I know is valued at a contract price and the bank is actually going backwards on some of these things. I think it was 2008 from memory. So uh, yeah, um, it happens. And so, you know, people need to understand why it happens. And we are going to go a bit more deeper into some of these things. But it's important to also talk a bit about, Cheryl, about growth corridor and growth suburb. Do you want to go into a bit more detail about, you know, these growth corridors where these developments are happening? Yeah. So let's let's clarify what those terms mean in your growth corridor suburbs are they you know are they one and the same thing or are we talking about really different locations as well yeah it's interesting right i mean you see media talking a lot about growth corridors and you see government talking about growth corridors all the time and usually when they talk about growth corridors it's about areas where there's heaps of land available government is bringing in a lot of new infrastructure they're expecting future population growth um, there is train station coming, new shopping centers coming, etc. All of that is coming through. And so naturally it attracts people, right? People think that, oh, more people means that the prices are going to go up. What they forget is that the supply is enough to catch for the demand. And so the laws of economic comes into place 
that if there is enough supply to catch the demand, then the prices don't go up. The supply has to be really, really constrained and a higher demand would basically go up and prices would push the prices up. And so when you talk about growth corridors, you know, naturally when you hear people or sales agent talks about, oh, there's a new train station coming, there is a brand new school coming here, there is a footy ground coming here, there is Westfield coming here. All of these things, of course, developer knows about it, right? He has done the plan of subdivision. It's his town planning, right? He has thought all of these through and they're already built into the price. Naturally, people putting a premium on top of these prices is what the developer's expectation is so that he can charge more for the next stage, right? So, you know, paying a premium, all all of these crazy nomination sales that we would talk about is because of this notion that people think that, okay, you know, a new train station is going to add premium to this particular state, but that's really not the case. Um, it's a controlled supply that basically drives the prices up. You think about the growth suburb, the growth suburb is slightly different to the growth corridor. When you talk about the growth suburb, it's about a mature suburb where all the development has happened, all the infrastructure has come through, the schools are there, everything is there. And now the growth that is coming through in these areas is true growth dependent on the demand of the owner occupier who really, really wants to live there. It's not a developer controlled supply driving the, the, the demand up. It's actually owner occupier wanting to live there, paying a premium for the property which basically drives the price up. And so there is a clear distinction between a growth suburb and a growth corridor. And so people should never get confused about, you know, some of these notions that, you know, a lot of sales agents put puts on in selling some of these house and land yeah. packages. And I, I'd like to sort of play devil's advocate in, in this aspect as well. Like growth corridors, not saying that they'll never grow, right? But it's, yes. it's saying if you're getting in early, if you're the first cab off the right, and uh, and it tends to be really attractive from an owner like I point of view, like you know, it's a new school, things brand new, it's parks, it's all that huge amount yeah. of spending there, and you, you know, all the houses and you know, all the streets, and you know, everything looks nice. It's it's a place where young, generally young families want to move into, and so on. So if you're at the start of that, like it's boring to. But you're, you're willing to hold on to that for a while. Like you're going to be there for a while. And, and understand that it's like suburbs generally have a natural sort of end anyhow. You know, this, this, this freeway to this freeway that's sort of, yeah, it, um, sort of, you've got, you've got an ending to that suburb. But if you're at the very beginning, you're going to have to wait a few years for that suburb fills up. Yes, and, and that catching up. However, once it sort of catches up, and then that that's when that pressure cooker, you know, there's there's well, that's what it is now, and there's no more additional worse and I'm sorry, no more additional supply. That's when you can really see that growth that you talked definitely. about. Definitely, definitely. You're talking in in Sydney, uh, northwest. So it's like Kellyville. So that that's a good example of farmland that was in a, that was has been developed and we didn't see a lot of growth at the beginning of it in twenty twenty fifteen or around then when it when it started. But you look now and I know I know you know pretty much all of Australia had growth in twenty twenty. 
but that particular summit has become such high demand because of definitely 100% I was there in 2016 in Kellyville I still remember that it was just about to start and um, there was an 1800 square meter land that was selling for $650,000 and I said no to it I was like it's a farmland you know I don't want to buy these you know I have a development that's going on is it a regret yes because you know naturally you know when you think about some of these things that when you are looking at a growth corridor converting into a growth suburb with higher you know demand lower supply what you want to do is if you're an owner occupier and can sit there and wait it's great it's awesome awesome it's amazing but as an investor does it make sense to wait that long you know my view of the world has slightly shifted and changed and you know i think that if there is a massive development coming in the area, then you should just buy established property with a big land next to that development. And as the land prices go up, you would see the same amount of growth coming to your land in the, at the same time. And you wouldn't be paying the premium of the state. You know? yeah. and, and there are countless number of examples. You look at Clyde in, in, in Melbourne. You look at Point Cook in, in the West. Uh, you look at Williams Landing. You look at... Um, again, Calibill, Marsden Park, um, so heaps of examples where you can see that playing out that, yeah. you know, early buyers don't get to see or they get to see a similar sort of land appreciation to people who are buying five or six years into the development as well. And so, yeah. you know, the view of the world is that it usually takes about, you know, five or six years for a growth corridor to mature. And once it's closer to that maturity, you should enter in and buy in as an investor. But as a first-home buyer or if you're looking for an investment to live in or a property to live in, then it's perfect. You know, you just buy and, and sit there and wait and, and play the wait game. But as an investor, for example, if there are 10 stages to a particular development, maybe enter at stage 8 you know, or stage 9 and you would see some growth coming through rather than entering at yeah. you know, stage 1. Yeah, absolutely. So, at what women, what's a good example, do you say, of a growth suburb? Are we talking about established areas where then there's a new development? Or are we talking about just established areas that just have some level of this? There's, there's something that triggers it to, to start to grow, you know what I mean? Well, well, ultimately, when you think about, you know, majority of the house and land packages they would always come in what we call it is greenfield areas right but if you talk about house and land packages in infield areas then the story definitely changes right because the supply is crunched a developer has come in and just released 20 lots or 30 lots and the land is a premium there's a lot of demand and naturally you know buying a house and land there would would do wonders to you, right? You can think about some of these examples in, say, Burwood or Springwell, where there was literally farmland sitting there that was released really, really late. Um, there is Century Lakes in Point Cook that did a lot of that as well. Um, there is areas in Adelaide that, that has done, you know, typically that as well. For example, Aldinga Beach, Renella, Moffatwell, you know, they had small pockets of, you know, 50 lots or 20 lots that was released and, you know, everything pretty much developed and so you know house and even like miguel in in Adelaide, i remember one of my client has bought a house and land package there not that i sold it to them you know i'm quite biased but they bought a house and land package in miguel 
um, at the right time. I think around 2018, 2019 for 550, that property is now worth about almost a million dollar close to the mark. So amazing purchase, nothing wrong with that. So Fantastic. And based, you've probably seen these in terms of the plan in the established suburbs, which will be, um, and I think of where you step in there, New South Wales, like say for the North Shore, where you've got areas that are, are, are quite in terms of price-wise, you know, they're up there. And then you come and see this releasing of land that allows for like townhouses and things like that, where then developers are creating a more affordable product in a tightly housing area, which a lot of people are priced out of. And they, they sell townhouses off the brand. Yes. So yeah. in, in that circumstance, what, how would you describe that sort of, that sort of property? And is that something which ticks the box to say, Hey, that's potentially a good buy? And I know you're biased, but let's <laughs> look from an investment perspective. Anything that comes with the land would attract some sort of growth, right? And so if you have a choice between buying a freehold land versus buying a, a land in a strata or a land in owner or you know um, in a subdivision, for example, then you would rather always go for a freehold title. And so, the, the typical example that you've given is an amazing example. And so, a lot of these infill developments where they are building townhouses, my preference would always be to buy the front lot, which is usually on its own title, and forget the lots at the back or the, forget the lots on the side. Because it comes with its premium land, which means that the prices would go up. Um, does the prices at the back lots go up as well? Yes, potentially they would because they are so tightly controlled markets, right? Um, but if it was an apartment, you wouldn't see that growth. And so people need to understand that even apartments are sold as off-the-plan properties. And some of these tightly held areas where there are school zones, you know, there are, you know, high-end houses... You know, to create an affordable product, a developer would come in and do a, a three-level apartment or a four-level apartment building, and people would naturally think that, you know, oh, I would get growth in there too. You don't. You know, it's always associated with the land. The land drives or attracts the demand. Of course, you know, there are some limitations to this methodology, right? You think about Bondi, you think about Point Piper, if there are apartments there, they are still selling at one 0.5, 2 million, 3 million, even 5 million apartments, right? Or penthouses, et cetera. And so you see some growth coming through some of these areas too. And so it's a completely niche in a different market, but usually it doesn't happen everywhere. You know, you can't replicate this to Gold Coast or to Melbourne or to Brisbane or to Adelaide. So let's sort of break it down and, and summarize a little bit in terms of when when it's a good time to consider our surname gone off the plan. So we talked around, you know, um, getting the getting things from government grants, being able to have smaller deposits to, to hold onto as well. I just wanted to add another benefit of potentially buying off the plan is that with deposits you can instead of tying up your deposit, you can use tools like deposit bonds. So yes. you can Dollars. If something's going to settle in two years or so, you're not tying up your tying up your cash there. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's there. Um, typically, you're buying in an area that's going to be there's a whole lot of investment that goes into infrastructure, 
in shops and 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 all that in schools. Um, that's why you pay really high contributions for those tools. That what are some other things covered in terms of why why it's a bad idea? Or oh, we talked about it being generally a better area for owner occupiers as well, and and newer properties. So you've got yes. new properties, new streets, so on and so forth. We, is there anything that we've missed from that part? And why the only caveat to all of this is. Um, uh, as an owner occupier, if you're looking to enter into the market and you have a really low deposit, then you know house and land would be a perfect fit for you. Okay. Um, the other thing that I always say to people as an investor, if you don't have a lot of money and you are still keen on investing, then house and land could be a great place to start, right? Because ultimately, you're entering into the market. Entering into the market is the key. A lot of people wait for those big bank deposits and I say, look, you know, if you only have 20K that you would buy an expensive car for, put it towards the land, right? It's simple as that. Um, rather than waiting for that fifty or $100,000 that you're going to build up. Yeah, you would get an opportunity to sell. Potentially in Melbourne, you could flip it or you can settle it and there is a small risk that, are, that is attached to it. And so, you know, if you talk about uh, investment-grade property, I think, House and land packages sit at the lowest level, you know, when you talk about the scale from one to 10, you know, 10 being the best and one being the lowest, probably house and land sits somewhere around two or three, yeah, you know, just above apartments. Because there is land attached to it, you know, you would still see growth coming through. You can't discount and say, oh, there would be no growth. There would definitely be growth in these properties. It's not that it wouldn't. So, yeah, so that's the key thing. Ultimately, if you talk about the risks, what are the key risks when you think about you know, these properties, you know, naturally people treat a lot of these properties as a gambling exercise, right? You know, you would buy three land or four land or five land. You don't need to pay a lot of money. You can pay five, ten, fifteen thousand dollars and hold, you know, on each property and hold five properties or eight properties or how many X you want in anticipation that these properties would grow by twenty thousand dollar each and you know, ten properties at twenty thousand at two hundred thousand dollars that you can make in two years. It works in the seller's market, but it wouldn't work in the buyer's market. And so um, I've seen people getting caught where they had five titles on themselves and they were holding them to make a quick $100,000 over two years and the market changed or the market switched or the demand disappeared or there was excess supply coming through. And all of a sudden now you're in a position where, you know, you need $1 million or $1.5 million to settle these and you don't have that sort of serviceability because there is no income attached to it. You can't back out of the contract because these contracts are usually done in such a way that there is no finance clause attached to it. And so you are right on the risk from day one. And so now you're losing your deposits on four properties at $40,000, settling one, making it 20000 And so you're netting off basically nil or, or in a negative $20,000 position. And so be careful in relation to the risks and understand that you know, you're not at the risk for 20000 You are at a risk for the full price of the contract. You know, that's naturally what people need to understand when buying some of yeah. these things. Yeah, and, and the big risk at the moment, I know it's, again, it, it's all out in the media, is that you've got builders who are not quite making it build. So that's a that's a big risk. Um, they're in the art market, we're seeing, we're seeing that we've got, got a very, very 
large builder, very large computer or builder who's just one on the liquidation. Um, and we're seeing this a lot in, our, in, in small and large builders. So there is, there is the risk there. I'd like to say that there, there is some way that people can manage it. But when you're talking about really more large builders, you don't get access to that finances or whatever. Well, yes. like you can ask that to one. You can ask that of all. Your small scale builder to be able to get some level of comfort, but these these large builders, it's 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 hard. So that's a that's a big risk. We know that it, it is. You know, is it a small risk in these uh, in the current market? It's 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 actually a very realistic and risk there. So you do have to consider what happens in that circumstance as well. Definitely, definitely. And look, I mean, people have been. You know, some of the key risks, as you mentioned before, also is that the banks might decide to value this lower than the contract price. And so you buy something at 300 and the bank comes down and says, no, we are going to only give you 250. You have three of these and all of a sudden you are out of pocket by 150 plus 20 percent deposit. And so you're stuck. Right. And so people need to understand that that does happen just because you haven't seen it happening doesn't mean that it doesn't happen. I'm, I'm seeing a lot of that in box sale right now in Austria right now where you know the lands were selling all the way from 350 in 2018 to almost 800 850 and now coming back to 600 right and so people who have signed the contract or bought a nomination sale or, or done whatever at 700 750 they go to the bank to value these and you know you'd be getting a 650 600 valuation and so you are strict like significantly out of pocket on some of these you know these deals on especially the land Acquisition, so yeah. yeah, you have to be really, really careful. Absolutely. So, what are the considerations then? So, people are going, okay, well, house and land off the plan. What's what's better than than that? I want something that's fairly low risk. It makes me feel like I've purchased into something. I'm I'm moving ahead with my my portfolio. Not again. For a lot of people, that might be an option to do the house and land. But what what are the options there? Yeah. Look, ultimately, when you're starting off and you are starting off on a low deposit, because house and land is attractive for people with low deposit, right? And so if, say if you have fifty or $60,000, uh, go into a regional area and buy something around three fifty. You know, that should be suffice with the big land, with an income coming to you, of course, in a growth suburb rather than a growth corridor. And so mature suburb where there is a lot of demand, there is a lot of infrastructure coming through. And you would see that, you know, you would get growth coming back to you quite quickly. You would get the yield, the income, the banks are going to love you. You're basically bypassing a lot of these troubles in relation to the builders. The interesting bit is this, right? I've heard so many times, and this is me busting the myths now, that you know there is all these negative gearing benefits that people talk about in house and land because they're brand new and stamp duty savings, etc., all of that. And so if you if you think about it, you know, from a negative gearing perspective, you shouldn't be making an investment decisions just because there is a negative gearing benefit attached to it or because you're not paying any stamps on it. Um, ultimately, the investment decision should be made based on the fundamentals of the suburb and the property itself. Um, tax is an added strategy. It's not the only strategy, you know. So, you know, people naturally think, I was talking to a client today, actually, and she said to me that, hey, my only uh, way uh, to build my portfolio is to save tax. And I said, okay, so you want oh, to spend, 
Yeah, and so naturally, that's how people think, right? People who are on three hundred, four hundred thousand dollar income or five hundred thousand dollar income, they're like, "Oh, you're paying just way too much tax, right?" And so it's like, okay, and so you should be saving the tax while the properties are still neutrally positive, right? Or or cash positive or neutrally geared, right? You shouldn't be like losing twenty thousand dollars from your disposable income to save you know, $5,000, that's just ridiculous. That just doesn't make any sense, right? And so it's important to understand that difference is that while negative gearing, you know, works in certain scenarios, that's not a strategy to play. It's a byproduct to interest rates and deposits that you're going to charge, right? And so every time an interest rate goes up, you see a lot of sales agents saying, hey, negative gearing, and the interest rate goes down and they say, hey, positive cash flow. So, you know, you shouldn't go into... That makes, you know, you should focus on more on the sustainability of your portfolio rather than going down these routes of negative gearing. Uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about negative gearing in, a, in another episode, but, you know, at some point negative gearing is eating into your, your serviceability and your fund and benefit funds. And, you know, you're going to get, you're going to, you're going to hit your ceiling a lot, a lot sooner than if you. Definitely. Definitely. Well, banks hate you. If you're negative gearing a property, the banks, definitely, you're not their best love son. You know, let's put it that way. <laughs> they definitely hate you. They don't, they don't look at it very quickly. So, okay, so we've got, you know, the, the rank component. We've got the rank component. If you can buy something in an area that, again, we talk about this pressure focus sort of thing. Like, look, look at the, the fundamentals, at what's being around the area, what's surrounding and how much there's supply and demands the the economics of this. And do we is it is it somewhere that we're buying brand new as well or an established? No, I think established def- definitely offers better opportunities because you would be going for a house which is as close to the land value as possible. And so people who you know, say, for example, want to make a lifestyle choice, right? And so they have a decent deposit in place. I would say rather than going out and buying a house and land package, go into the same suburb and just buy a big piece of land, right? And so naturally, as the developer pushes the land prices up, because your land is in the same suburb, probably, you know, very close to that development, you would see that growth coming through to your properties naturally. Yeah, you don't have to do anything because... Ultimately, your lifestyle choice doesn't have to be in that development. It can be outside the development as well. Okay. And that would, you know, reap a lot better benefits from your perspective than, you know, someone else. You know, people need to understand is that while the land appreciates, the building depreciates, right? So from a house of land perspective, if I'm buying a land for say $300,000, right? Um, and I'm building a $300,000 house, the bank is valuing it at six hundred. You know, if the land goes up by say twenty thousand every year, my house value does not go up by twenty thousand every year. It's not that my house goes to six twenty and then six forty and then six sixty. It doesn't happen that way. And the reason is because the build process remains pretty consistent, and so people would still be able to buy in that same pocket or build in that same pocket for relatively around six twenty six thirty at any given point in time. Even if the land prices are going up, the builders would, you know, try to force that product into some way, shape or form at that price point. And so naturally what tends to happen is that you would see as your house gets older, it gets it's depreciated more. And so your value might go from say six hundred 
to 620, 630, 640 over the next four or five years. But the land price keeps going up. And so if you're just holding the land on cash, you would you're, you would see the appreciation coming through. And so that's the whole concept. If you buy a bigger piece of land on established house, then you would see the appreciation coming in your own established home quite significantly because, you know, bank is not valuing the house. People will not be valuing an old house anyway. Yeah, and, and with the older house, you've got more scope to be able to add value. If you want to be able to put a granny flat at the back, extend, whatever that might be, you've got the ability to do that. So Definitely. I guess to start to, to round things up as well, for those of you who are looking at house, house and land or off the plan, there are some red flags I think we want to be able to point out as well. Yes. And some things be well, but then look really attractive. So one of the things is taking note if whoever is selling, selling you the property and, and often it might be a project marketer. Um, so project marketers are often with developers. You'll find that they want to push their stock as quickly as possible. So they'll have not just one exclusive agent, they'll have lots of an open agency. And what that means is that you often see that these agents get paid in a, an eye-watering amount of commission. And I say eye-watering, I have seen them when they have been 50000 60000 in commission. Yes. And why that happens is because that agent is um, has an agreement with the developer, but that agent has five other agents that they've got conjunctions with, and they're like, we'll share this, we'll share this commission. I've got sixty thousand commission. I get thirty, you get thirty. So there's sixty thousand dollars worth in that price that you paid for, and that's going to an agent, which is really great for the agent. You sort of have, to, oh my goodness, like. That, that amount of money could have been a saving in your yep. rack as well. So and, if you're going through sort of project marketing. Yeah. And we know this because Cheryl, I mean, as, a, as developers within us, you know, we paid some of that money to the project marketing people as well, right? When we are selling our own projects and the poor person who's buying this pro- project at the other end, this is the market norm. And so my advice to people is that instead of buying a house land package, just go buy a land from a developer directly so that you're paying less amount of that commission and then just find a builder yourself, a reputed builder and build it yourself rather than just getting a house and land package because then naturally you're paying that commission on the house and the land component both, right? And so, you know, usually you would see that um, these these lands attract less of these commissions versus the houses because they're built into the build contract majority of the times. Um, and the and the kickbacks come from the builder rather than the uh, the land division or the land developers. So, you know, that's, yeah. you know, a, a quick tip. Yeah, so it's, it's a very important red flag. And so, you know, people or real estate agents talk about exclusive deals, you know, uh, tightly held stock. You know, you just need to be really careful of, you know, as soon as someone says exclusive, there is no exclusivity in some of these greenfield uh, developments. Yeah, absolutely. And the second red flag is when the ad says rental guarantee. So they're trying to attract investors what rental guarantees and we used to see these everywhere. It's 7% rental guarantee because the investors will go in and go, 
why people think of it as free out, but the developers giving me a 7% rental guarantee. I'm good for the next three years. After the three years, we've seen where there's been crickets for that range. Yes. It happened to one of my friends recently. I mean, I met him or, you know, we were talking about this particular house that he was acquiring in Melbourne. Um, and so he purchased that house with a 7% rental guarantee for two years. And um, and I did say, look, you know, yes, for two years it's great, but you are paying a premium for that rental guarantee, right? You know, the, the builder doesn't pay or the, the property manager doesn't pay rental guarantees from the pocket, right? You know, if the house is worth 700 they'll mark it up to 740 and that $40,000 is basically your rental guarantee. You are paying for your own rental guarantee, right? It's just packaged into the deal in such a way that, you know, you naturally think that, you know, these rental guarantees are for your protection. But it's great from a bank's perspective, especially if you are an owner-occupier and if you want to live there in three years' time, then yeah, go for it, right? Get a rental guarantee and three years down the track, you might have saved enough or, um, you know, you can pay this off quickly, etc. You know, there might be some uh, positives to it, but naturally don't think about some of these things as, oh, rental guarantee is great because when you come off these rental guarantees and the market and you come to the market rentals, it is quite painful. That transition is quite painful. Yeah, so so just have to just do a quick roundup, you know, house and land off the plan, they're, they're not necessarily bad things, they're just we've highlighted some of the things to consider when you're when you're going through this. There are definitely some benefits there, um, particularly if you're a well-known occupier. Look at the areas that you're buying in. You know, are you going to be there for a long time? There, there are all these considerations you're going to put it into, then weigh out whether it's something that, that, that works for you or not. And it, it needs to be a part of a, a long-term and thought-out strategy as to what you're doing. And we've talked about strategy before in, in previous episodes. So, Moss, any final words we wrap this all up? Look, I think you've you've pretty much summarized all of this. You know, if you're making a lifestyle choice, house and land, not so bad. If you're making an investment choice, yes, there are better choices out there. Absolutely. All righty. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for listening. I'd love to hear the audience's experiences with off the plan house and land practice whether it was a great outcome for you and whether it's a not so good outcome for you it'd be great to get your input and share you know share your experiences share, share your journey with us um and it, it also helps us come up with more topics to be able to share with you as well so until our next episode thanks very much for and myself for the healthy podcast speak to you later bye Thank you very much. Take care. Adios. Hey.